friction is very, very closely connected with the viability of any entrepreneurial venture because friction means drag. Drag means you slow down speed. And when you slow down speed, you actually also impede the ability of a venture to gain scale quickly. Friction is a huge psychological burden. Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks. I gotta get a knife. <laughs> I gotta hide it. They end up spending a lot of time ruminating. <laughs> I'm Bob Sutton. I'm an organizational psychologist and a Stanford engineering professor. And I've spent much of my life trying to understand how to make organizations and make the work that people do in them a bit better. Between about 2007 and 2014, uh, my, uh, as he loves to call it, co-conspirator, Huggy Rao and I, he's a professor at the Stanford Business School, went on this adventure to try to figure out um, organizational scaling, the, the problem of uh, spreading things that are good from where they are to where they aren't in organizations, including growing um, organizations to be bigger and, but still more effective. And um, so we ended up writing a book and we've, we've taught classes and done a lot around that. But in the process, one of the things that really has struck us that's a separate topic, it's that tension, that drag that frustrates people, that wears them out makes it harder for them to do their jobs and, and that undermines the effectiveness of organizations and in the end can actually slow them down and even destroy them. To learn more about this problem, uh, what causes it, how you get rid of it, and when it's good, I've invited some of the smartest and sometimes some of the funniest people I know to have some conversations with us um, about this challenge. This is the Friction Podcast. Today, we have my co-conspirator, Huggy Rao, who has been with me since the start of this journey. We're going to talk about what friction is, how to fight it, and when it can be good. So one story that comes to mind uh, uh, is, of course, the two entrepreneurs that you and I know very well, who are Ankit and Akshay, who started Pulse. That meant they, so, so what they were doing was they were arguing, they were disorganized, everything was all screwed up. That's right. Well, what was kind of happening was they'd hired eight people and there was an enormous amount of duplication. And the first coordination device was a whiteboard where everybody would begin the day by saying, hey, here's what I'm going to get done by 6 p.m. today. And once all the other eight people saw what each one was doing, you kind of realized, oh, I don't need to do that. Somebody else is already doing that. So what the whiteboard did was it actually allowed for the specialization of effort. It reduced duplication. And by reducing duplication, it also reduced friction. So that's at a scale of like eight eight. Yeah, yeah, no, it's funny because now I'm remembering that story when they got to about 12 or 13 people, they broke into little two or three person groups and to deal with the coordination and communication problem, each little group would stand up and say, I accomplished this today. Here's my problem. Can you help me? That's right. So so I I think that's an interesting uh, place to start given uh, what our goals are for this this podcast, which is 
essentially we're on this little journey together, not just in this podcast, but in the classes we're teaching and, and uh, the research we're doing, the cases we're writing, the conversations with all sorts of, of executives mm-hmm. and the like to understand uh, what are the causes of friction and at least – and we, maybe we should talk a little bit about what we mean by friction. What are the causes of friction, that feeling that something's difficult to do when it should actually be reasonably easy, uh, what, um, what you can do to reduce those problems, and then also, also when, uh, when friction is good. The other kinds of friction are, imagine, you know, working in a project management company, five people are at the table, you ask them and say, hey, how long is the project going to take? And you can very quickly see, you know, nobody's going to answer that question initially. You're always going to wait for somebody to go first, and then you kind of like riff off the first person's kind of estimate. And everybody knows these estimates are invalid, unrealistic. And so the result is friction on occasion can lead to truth-telling being a casualty in organizations, and that can be a real problem. When everybody, um, if you will is overly optimistic and afraid to tell the truth about how long things will take. There's, there's more friction because everybody does, bla- does bad planning. And then, and then the other thing that happens is the problem of silence, mm. that very often the people with the most information and most status uh, set the agenda, but the people who have the real information don't say anything because they're afraid they'll get stepped on. That's right. And what that leads to, as you can well imagine, is it leads to a sampling bias. Yep. You listen to the people who are more vocal, who talk a lot more, and then the people who don't say anything, you don't pay any attention. And when you don't pay any attention, it's sort of like you're blind and deaf. And uh, that's a huge problem. And what, to my mind, what friction does is if we don't deal with it, entrepreneurs, venture leaders, um, you know, product managers, you know, any particular designation or title you can think of in organizations, they actually uh, find friction is experienced as a huge psychological burden. Yeah. And the problem is you don't turn the friction off at work. Uh, it actually persists on the drive back home uh, or on the commuter train journey back home. You actually take it home. And uh, in that sense, to my mind, what friction does is... Um, it's actually insidious. So as we look ahead, one of the many areas that we look at are both uh, psychological uh-huh. and financial incentives uh-huh. to add friction rather than subtract it. And in, in the way we summarize this is uh, there's an old uh, comedy routine by George Carlin, which we just love. And his, and it's about stuff. And, and one of my favorite lines, which is now um, fueling our research, actually, is this notion that uh, your stuff is shit. And my shit is stuff. So, so to translate, uh, there's all these situations, including at our own employer, but just about every organization we know of, where people have all sorts of psychological and financial incentives for adding new practices, new programs, mm-hmm. new routines, both because they can talk about what they've done mm-hmm. and um, it makes them feel good because they've had a positive effect. But um, then other people add stuff which they just think is garbage, Mm -hmm. but they don't have the power to subtract it. Mm -hmm. So you end up with this world where there's bazillions of procedures and practices and new rules Mm -hmm. and – and well, even new businesses, even even new product lines sometimes that don't sell very well. Mm -hmm. And everybody has the power to add and nobody has the power to subtract.
There's an argument that too much decentralization is a real problem. And, and one of my favorite examples, which we've both uh, seen a, and studied a lot, is uh, when Steve Jobs first took over Apple in the mid-90s, one of the biggest problems they had, and if you look at the list of products, they had about 30 different Macintoshes, not to mention they had a computer gaming system, which nobody ever seems to ever heard of. They had the Newton, which is, which is the forerunner to you know, a handheld device and all this sort of stuff. And uh, within a year, he'd gotten rid of everything, and they only had four products. This was before the iPhone or anything. And, uh, and if you do an analysis of that, and that's incredible friction and also con- confusion for a consumer because if, if there's nine different Macintoshes, how do I know which one to buy? Or actually 30 there were. And, uh, and, and, and so, so in that case, when you go back and talk to people who work at Apple, the, the political problem was that um, all sorts of um, upper-middle-level executives had the power to add mm-hmm. products, but none of them had the power to kill other products. Mm-hmm. And, but when Steve came in being king, he had the power to kill everything, so he did and started over with right. a simple product line. So, so to me, that, you know, for, for our, um, our entrepreneurs, although there's always going to be this balance between uh, having involvement and enthusiasm because you want the energy and you want the ideas, there's a point where, um, you know, and, and I've argued this and uh, I, maybe you disagree with me, but there, there's a point where uh, hierarchy is generally good and sometimes too little can get you in trouble. But sometimes ignorance can lead to friction too. Um, hmm. And the kind of ignorance we've talked about is pluralistic ignorance and my apologies for the jargon. What this sort of implies is we privately entertain one belief, but we mistakenly think that a prevalent, the prevailing belief is something else. So in fact, one of the earliest studies of pluralistic ignorance was done right here on the Stanford campus. They asked Stanford undergrads, hey, what do you privately think of drinking on campus? And the undergrads responded on, you know, their individual responses suggested that they all thought it was a bad idea to drink on campus. But when you ask the same undergrads, what do you think the average Stanford student thinks about drinking on the campus? Their conclusion was the average Stanford student thinks it's a great idea. And you see the disconnect. Privately, I think drinking is a bad idea, but I think The average Stanford student loves it, so I assume publicly everybody sanctions it, endorses it, authorizes it. Now, and what did they find was the best way to reduce friction? To actually let people know, hey, if this is your private belief, surprise, surprise, Others have private beliefs that are pretty similar to yours, if not identical. So that I mean, that's interesting to sort of take it back to um, to some of well, a big university like Stanford or a small startups. There's situations where everybody will publicly behave as if um, adding uh, more and more of the ornamentation of a complex bureaucracy is something they should do. Having more checks and balances, having more specialized roles, and so on, uh, and uh, they'll they'll publicly act like that. But privately, they'll realize that they're adding too much so, and adding, adding friction. So I think that's a case where that's actually true. Okay, Huggy. So, you know, we're academics. We, we like complaining. It's, so so why, why do we care about this? Why should, why should the listeners care about this? You know, if you're an entrepreneur, what do we have? You actually have a product or a service that you actually want to offer to customers. 
if you're an entrepreneur, what's your job? You really are recruiter in chief. You got to get uh, not only employees, but you got to get VCs on board. You've got to get angel investors on board. So you're extremely interdependent with a whole range of other people. Now, the whole thing about friction to my mind, friction is like getting rid of friction is like staying in shape regularly through exercise. Uh, and part of what happens is what happens if you actually slack off? You don't do exercise. Well, you add flab, you add weight, you you actually don't feel as good as you did before. And the more regularly you exercise and uh, you know, purge friction from the organization, you actually become agile. Agile isn't a word. It's actually a state of being in an organization. You become nimbler. You become quicker. You could conceivably even pivot faster as an entrepreneur. Something else that uh, we'll be talking about and we're quite interested in is the notion that sometimes um, friction isn't all bad. And making things, especially dumb things, difficult to do is a good idea. So why don't, why don't you tell us our Google, the Google Laszlo Bach story, and we can wrap up on positive friction. So the other day in class, um, we had Laszlo Bach, who used to uh, head people operations at uh, Google and India. They call that Bach. the head of HR in any normal organization. That's right, and you know he pioneered that. In with some the lovely story he's you know shared with us was how. The number of uh, interviews, job interviews that were conducted before a person was hired was about 14 or so, which obviously led to a lot of time and energy and so forth. Four, they, 14? You said 14? Yeah, interviews? That's four. a lot of interviews. And they brought it down to around a little more than four, all by adding friction. And where did they add friction? They told everybody. If you want to have more than four interviews, you really need to get approval from the senior VP who was Laszlo Bach. And what did a lot of people do? They just said, oh, God, you know, I'm not <laughs> going to go that high to actually get approval to do the fifth or sixth interview. They stopped doing them. And you actually made the process much quicker and uh, faster. So that's a lovely example. And the point that, uh, you know, uh, what Bob and I are interested in this research is we really are interested in particularly listen, you know, in hearing from our listeners on lightweight things we can yep. do to reduce friction. Yep. See, when you intervene, when your intervention in an organization to reduce friction demands a lot of time from people and demands a lot of emotion and energy from people, that's like heavy weight. It's a burden. Nobody's going to do it. So there it is, friction, sometimes good, sometimes bad. We're going to be bringing you conversations with my friends and colleagues. We'll offer some stories from the front lines and some advice you might use to reduce friction in your own organizations and your own workplaces. Next week, we have Patty McCord, who was a key architect of the Netflix culture and now helps firms like Warby Parker become more effective and also more innovative. We're going to have a great conversation about who to hire and who to fire. It's a rollicking conversation that you aren't going to want to miss. For more information about the topics that Huggy Rao and I talked about today, go to ecorner.stanford.edu and click on show notes. 
please join us on our mission to improve organizations and work by sharing your stories, tips, and tricks, all those lessons you glean from the front lines of the workplace. To reach out, please email us at stvp-ecorner at stanford.edu or find us on Twitter at eCorner. Also, please rate and review us on iTunes to help spread the word about this podcast. The Friction Podcast is a Stanford eCorner original series brought to you by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and the Designing Organizational Change Project. Friction is produced by Eli Shell and Rachel Jilkowski. Michael Pena and Monica Yort are the outreach team. Danielle Stusi is our designer. Sarah Khan and Devorce Sankovich provide web support. Thanks again to my co-conspirator, Huggy Hayagriva Rao. And finally, in producing this podcast, or in fact, writing a book, doing a film, inevitably, the, some good stuff ends up on the cutting room floor. But we still wanted to share it with you. So, at the end of each episode, we will play one final little clip. Because we academics are given to so many weird digressions, we have dubbed this last little bit the final tangent. So, for your listening pleasure, here is today's final tangent. That my late father uh, was a U.S. Navy defense contractor. And um, my whole life growing up, I heard him come home from work every day and, and really just have a temper tantrum about how impossible it was to do the simplest sort of things with the U.S. Navy. And, uh, and he explained to me, for example, the reason why a coffee pot might cost $5,000, which I think there was a documented case, something like $2,000 or $5,000 coffee pot, because of the number of checks and balances and, and testing. And, and after it was all over and everybody got, um, every bureaucracy had to be supported. You had a coffee pot with, you know, in those days, probably $2 worth of material and, uh, and uh, $49,000 worth of bureaucracy and a hundred dollars profit for him, and uh, so so to me that's really the base of it. The, the just the amount of like his ranting every night. It was really all bureaucratic friction, and so he was an entrepreneur who, who Inland Marine. He founded a small company who was at war his entire life with a, with giant bureaucracies.